Hey guys, welcome back to Handling It. I'm your host, Catherine, and as you know, I thought I had my life all figured out, and then I realized I actually didn't. But I'm handling it. And one of the best ways I've learned how to do that is to talk with others about how they're handling their own lives. Well guys, happy Wednesday and thanks for tuning in. I am ready to kick off today's episode because we have such an incredible guest joining us. Today we'll be joined by the brilliant Victoria Schwab, also known as V.E. Schwab. Victoria is a number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 books that cross genres like fantasy and science fiction. And at 33 years old, she's easily become one of today's most acclaimed authors. Last year during the pandemic, Victoria released her most recent novel, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which tells the story of a young woman, Addie, who in 17th century France makes a deal with the devil in order to escape an unwanted marriage and small town entrapment. Addie makes a deal to live forever, but in return, she is cursed to be forgotten by every person she meets. And after almost 300 years of traveling the world as a forgotten face to all, Addie's life takes a surprising turn when she finally meets someone who remembers her name. Today we'll be chatting about Victoria's experiences releasing the book during the pandemic, her inspiration for Addie LaRue, and what advice she has for creatives. So you know what to do, turn up the volume, get comfortable, and I hope you enjoy. Victoria, thank you so much for coming on. You're a New York Times bestselling author, having written over 20 books, some of which include the incredibly successful Shades of Magic series, and then, of course, your latest release, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Thank you so much for coming on to chat. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, you know, we were just chatting about this beforehand, but how have you been? I mean, 2021, 2020, it's been a crazy time. Uh, How have you been holding up? I know you've been traveling a lot, which is great now, but how was it for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel very fortunate in that I made the decision. I was in Scotland at the time, which is normally where I live. And I made the decision the day before the European lockdown started to come down to my family, to my parents in France, where they live, just so that we could be together. And I packed a carry-on suitcase because I didn't expect to be there more than five to six weeks. And I was there for 14 months. So I spent the entire pandemic, um, in, in what was simultaneously a very idyllic situation, because it's this tiny village in the French countryside, also a very strict situation, because for the vast majority of the pandemic, like we were not allowed to leave our village without paperwork explaining why we needed to leave the village. But also, you know, such a mess of emotions, because on the one hand, I could be with my family when so many people couldn't. And I was really grateful for that. On the other hand, I hadn't sat still that long since I was maybe 14 and I'm 33. And so uh, it was a very weird year. I mean, the year before I had been to 17 countries on tour and then all of a sudden the year that was supposed to be the largest year of my life because of Abby LaRue, a book 10 years in the making, which came out in, um, in October. Did it come out? When did it come out? I think it came out. Time has become like an absolute meaningless yep. shape to me. Um, yeah. And so I, I had to support this book in a virtual way after, you know, 10 years of planning. And the intention was it was going to be this big tour. It was going to be multi, 
country. And like, instead I, I did it all at a tiny desk in the jeet next door to my parents' house. Yeah. It's really crazy. And I, I love that you said that, that you like, you know, planned like a nice little trip to go visit with the family. And then it turned into like a much longer stay. Um, Cause it was very much the same for me. I was living in New York at the time and my family lives in Pennsylvania. So I thought like, oh, it was right around St. Patrick's day. I thought maybe they'll still have the parade. Like I know COVID might be coming, but we don't know. And I thought I'll just go in for the weekend. I'll like pop in. And the weekend turned into several months of just being, you know, in lockdown. And it, it was something, you know, none of us could prepare for. I mean, sure. We, we saw like headlines and alerts on the news, but I, I don't think we really thought it was going to happen globally the way it did and like have the impact that it did, unfortunately. Um, And I can only imagine, you know, when you're releasing a book, especially one that, you know, was so long in the making, uh, waiting like 10 years for this whole idea to fully come out into, you know, a finished product and, you know, shit really hit the fan. (laughs) Yeah, it did. And, you know, it's so weird because, you know, I, I definitely went through a period of mourning in like a small grief way, obviously not in a big grief way, um, which so many people went through, but I was probably around April, May, June, as things really started to worsen. And I realized that the, this book, you know, I, we didn't want to delay it. I didn't want to delay it. I had waited so long. And, and so it needed to come out and, and, be whatever it was going to be, but coming to terms with the fact that this thing that I had waited so long for uh, was not going to be the shape, um, the, the kind of release, the kind of uh, debut into the world. And then it was very interesting as, as arcs got sent out, as advanced copies got sent out, and as people began to read this thing that had lived in my head for so long, I began to realize that this might be the perfect book to come out during a pandemic. Because if you think about what the story is, it's a story of loneliness and of independence and of feeling trapped in an eternal present. And what happens when you don't have a sense of a future and how do you come to terms with small joy when you're deprived of large joy? And it was weird because I think in retrospect and maybe even a little bit at the time, I realized that that it might be okay. And that, you know, the thing is like a a book, it doesn't have an expiration date just because it comes out under one context doesn't mean it's the only context it's ever going to live in. And so once I realized that and really accepted that, you know, and I told myself, oh, it's fine if nobody reads it, it's fine if it just bombs and it just disappears quietly, like we'll try again for the paperback or I'll write more books. And, And very thankfully it didn't bomb or disappear. But uh, it was it was a messy process. Like it was a very messy, messy period. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine like the stress of it all too. Cause I, you know, I imagine it was very stressful. And, you know, before we get into talking about the book, I'm also curious, like with the pandemic and with you being an author and writing so much throughout your career, um, I'm assuming you did some writing during the pandemic. I'm not sure, but I'm curious, did you find that, you know, because time really did like come to a halt, like we had nowhere to go. We were locked indoors. Did you find that it was a time for you to really like hone in on your creativity and write more or not really? Did you, uh, you know, come into a roadblock? (laughs) 
here's the thing is that you had four times as much time to work and a quarter of the focus. So it's basically a wash, right? Like I technically had more time to work and I did, I won't lie. Like I did work. I also have a television show coming out soon. And so I, I was actually in the writer's room for six months of the pandemic and I was in France. And so my writer's room day would start at 6 PM and go until 2 AM. So I had a sense of structure that was being imposed that, that helped um, and was also exhausting, but no, I, I had more time. I had never sat still for more than a month since my career started more than a decade ago. And in that way, it should have been the most productive time of my life. But at the same time, we're all going through this unprecedented global event. And for, you know, part of it, there was also the election in the U S like there was just a, a complete catastrophe of distraction and, um, and so I, I was very distracted. Like I was definitely not at my most focused, not at my most honed. I did my best is what I'll say. And like, I was able to create some things. I mean, when I, I look back, I look back at like the, t- the list of things I accomplished during the pandemic and it feels like somebody else did it because at the time I felt very unproductive at the time I felt like I was dragging my feet through mud. And I look back and I, I mean, I did finish revising Addie LaRue and Addie LaRue came out. I wrote and revised a middle grade novel, which also came out, Bridge of Souls. I wrote a tele, like helped write a television show uh, and cast it and went into production. And I wrote my next novel, Gallant, and revised it all during the pandemic. But I still feel like I should have done more. Yes, I understand that 100%. And like, there's things that I had even, you know, I feel like it's, I always love hearing um, the projects that people intended to start during the pandemic. Like people saying, oh, I purchased a ukulele. I thought I'd learn how to bake, like all these things. Um, And we didn't really follow through. But yeah, I I feel like, you know, I completely agree with that. Because even for me, it's like, there's stuff that I did. And I did a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't have been able to do without this time. But then at the end of the day, you're still like, oh, I probably could have done more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think it was just like really any anything anyone managed to do, even if that was just survive, should be seen as a, as a triumph. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a year. And, and it, I, I think that's the thing, too. It doesn't always mean you have to do something with this time. If this time is just really pausing and focusing on you, um, you know, doing things that like just slow down your schedule. Cause I think for a lot of people, myself included, sometimes like I really just got to slow down. I said like, even yesterday was a day where like my eyes started twitching and I'm like, yeah, I should probably get more sleep. Like I think this time really did allow, hopefully for some people, I know I, you know, it was for me, but I hope this time did allow people to really like realize the limits to their work mm-hmm. and just to really, really, really slow down. Yeah. There's a slight permission that comes with the fact that like you, you are being forced to stop, whether that's stop physically moving for me, it was stop physically traveling for a year, whether it's more psychological, whether it's just a taking stock or realizing what's important and what's not. Um, I think it, it's a wake up in that way. It's a reset in that way. And I think that reset can feel frustrating and it can feel stagnating when you want to have momentum. But I also think it can be important when you, uh, like so many of our generation have just been hustling 
mm-hmm. for so, so long and so continuously. I mean, when I say that, like, probably the greatest gift that the pandemic gave me was time with my family. And, and there's no world in which I would have been able to spend a year as an adult uh, with my parents um, with like without making without something catastrophic happening. I just wouldn't have done it. I would have felt too guilty. I wouldn't have been able to stop. And, and so I look at this time period that I had with my family as just an incredible gift. And I'm not sure that's something I ever would have had the, I say discipline, meaning like discipline in the life sense, not the work sense to take that time. Mm -hmm. I completely, completely like love that because I sort of had the same realization you know, just walking around my, you know, my family's neighborhood, the neighborhood I grew up in and seeing a bunch of kids like in their mid to late twenties, like, who you know, haven't been around in ages. And it was such a beautiful thing because in short, like friendships took a hit, right? Because you're not with your friends. And that was unfortunate, but like, I was sort of looking at it like friends, you'll have all that time with your friends years after this, you really only have, you know, as an individual, you really only have so much time with your family. You know, for most people, it's like you, whenever you go to college or whenever you finish high school, you're, you're off and that's, you know, you're in the real world. And to have this time, I think with, and even people also like speaking of friends, but just people that, you know, are around the area you're in that you maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to reconnect with had this not happened. So it's been really nice. Um, I guess to sort of experience all of those things. Yeah. But yeah. And like you, like I said, you've certainly been busy and, you know, you've been doing a lot, but I do want to get into talking about Addie LaRue. Um, I have like my poor man's version of a quick little tease of the book. (laughs) Um, But it's Addie LaRue is about a young French girl who makes a deal with the devil in order to escape what would be like the confines of her upbringing. Um, And in making this bargain, you know, she bargains to live forever, but is cursed to be forgotten by everyone she meets. And, you know, after 300 years of glamorously exploring the world, she does meet a man who quite literally changes her life by simply remembering her name. And that's sort of how I would best describe it. And I'm not like the best at describing it. That's amazing. Perfect description. Um, but it's such, I'm also the type of person that I don't like to be too like given, I like to go into a book, not really knowing a ton about it. Yeah. Um, so I just like a little tease, but it's such a fabulous book. And I have to say, um, I'm, I've become the type of person that reads a lot of memoirs and that reads a lot of historical fiction. And my friend Bella is such a fan of your work. And I think she's read all 20, you know, (laughs) she loves everything that you've done. And she had recommended it. We were in New York at the time and it was on, it was on a shelf. Uh, We were at a bookstore and she said, you have to read it. It's, it's great. You have to read it. And it was fantastic. And I'm just curious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it, and I'm glad my reason in saying the books that I was reading before is because I do love, I guess you would call it fantasy and a little bit of romance and historical fiction, if you will, as well. Um, But it was nice to try something new for a change. Um, And I really enjoyed it. And then as since then, I've like gone into reading a little bit more fantasy and it's been really great. But yeah, so we had mentioned before, like this book was a long time, 10 years in the making. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, that's <laughs> yeah. What the I guess why, right? The question right. is why. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. How I guess how did the idea begin? And not to say why did it take so long, but you know, that's fine. Everybody asks that. I mean, it's ten years is a long time. Ten years is especially a long time for a prolific author. So as you mentioned, I have twenty books. You try and do the math. Obviously, all of them did not take 10 years. I am only 33. But that's the thing, right? Is when I write, it seems like I put out a book a year. It seems like I am writing a book quickly. But what actually is the case is usually I have like a, an on deck system. I have like what I always call my six burner stove, which is I have, if I, my brain is a six burner stove, I have one story on high heat that I'm actively writing. And the other five burners all have stories on low heat that are kind of mulling. And sometimes a story will stay mulling, kind of steeping, if you will, getting a little richer and a little deeper as I add ingredients to it to make a very extended metaphor. Um, For like a, a year or two or three, my next novel, Gallant, it was four years. So there's a, there's a range, but I'm always actively writing something. And so Addie sat on low heat for eight and a half years. And it wasn't that I lost interest in it. It wasn't even that it was like a very weird transition. Cause at first it was that I didn't have some of the ingredients. I was 23 when I got the initial idea for it. I wanted to write a Faustian bargain, but one that focused on a woman, because I'm always fascinated in this idea that like, if you look at Faustian bargains and immortality tales, they're always about men. And those men like get to live forever. And so then they like go out and they see everything there is to see and do everything there is to do and screw everyone there is to screw. And then they get bored. And I just thought like, well, there's a level of autonomy there that a woman would never have in a historical context. She wouldn't just get to move through the world with such freedom. So I was curious about that. And I was really curious about uh, Peter Pan. I'm like, I love Peter Pan, the original uh, J.M. Barry story. And it's a deeply sad ending because Peter is sitting on the rock at the end and he's already forgetting everything that's happened. But I, I at the same time, I'm 23, I'm thinking about that. And my grandmother is dying very slowly of dementia, of Alzheimer's. I'm so sad. And I'm, I, it was a very long process and I never really got to know her because she had always been ill for me. But I watched my mother be forgotten by her. And realizing, thinking about the dynamic of Peter Pan, who is forgetting, but my mother who is being forgotten, and that there was obviously, it was a much higher degree of suffering in being forgotten than in being the one who forgets. And so these are kind of like the initial ingredients for Addie's story. So I put those in the pot. And then it's probably like three or four years of checking the pot to see if it's ready. And, and finally, I'd say probably about five years in, I was, I had everything I needed. I didn't have a reason not to write it, except that I was terrified. I loved this story and, and I didn't want to do it wrong. So I kept putting it off and I kept putting it off and I kept putting it off. And, and essentially it wasn't until I was about 20 and I wrote every other book that has ever been published in my career mm-hmm. while Addie was sitting on that back burner. And then I was about 29. So it was like Henry's age in the book. And I realized one day, and I had told people about this story idea for years and everybody wanted to read it that I like that I worked with. And, and I realized I'm going to die without writing this book because in the interest of making something perfect, I will end up making nothing because I was so afraid that I couldn't do it right. And so I had to ask myself, like, would you rather have an idea that you never write that just lives in the ether and is therefore not flawed, 
but not real? (laughs) Or would you rather write something and know that it will be an imperfect version, but it will be on paper? And I was about 30 years old when I figured the answer to that question was that I would rather have the story because no book is ever perfect. No work of art in any form is ever perfect. It's a subjective medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that's basically why it took so long is I was afraid. I was deeply, deeply afraid of failing to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Well, that's a really great story and lesson to learn from, because even hearing you speak about that, just like what we said about the pandemic, even Mm -hmm. when time has slowed down and we think that we have all the time in the world, like it's still like, it's always going to be hard to sit down and do something to accomplish a goal. It's never going to be easy. And I think we get that twisted in our minds that in order to start something, in order to write a book, in order to, you know, write the next great American novel, you have to like sit down and have all the time in the world, but that's never going to happen. So it's, it's sort of like you have to stop making excuses as to, you know, why you can't do something and you just sort of have to do it. Well, the thing is too, as well, like, uh, in the arts industry, so like where art meets commerce books is the one that I work in, obviously, um, you will always have rejection. Like rejection will come from external sources. It never stops. I still get rejected all the time on things. Um, But like you are the first threshold of rejection, right? So until you can sit down and get past your own inner critic, until you can get past your own rejection or your own anticipation of rejection, your own fear of rejection, Uh, you can never even get to the point where other people can reject you. And so like, there's a lot of, there's a reason that many, many, many people start writing a novel and never finish. Part of it is distraction, but part of it, I truly believe is a fear of what happens when they do finish. Mm -hmm. I think that we like to live in the potential energy and not in the kinetic energy. We like to live in a space where we can't mess it up. And I think that kind of self-sabotage happens in all of creative spaces. I certainly do it all the time where I think if I don't write this thing, then it's perfect. As long as it's still in my head, it's perfect. It's the act of putting the thing down on paper uh, that is dangerous. Right. And with rejection, I think too, I, I mean, I say it all the time. You're, and like you just said, you're always going to hear no. Yeah. There's always going to be someone out there who's going to tell you no. So you might as well like get used to keeping your chin up and not really caring. I mean, criticism is great at the end of the day, but it doesn't mean you have to listen to it. And I think to go with your gut and go what, you know, what interests you, what you feel is right, Mm -hmm. um, you know, go with it. And at the end of the day, if you don't like it, okay, then maybe it wasn't the right time, Mm -hmm. but you might, I think a lot of times we do surprise ourselves in making decisions like that. Definitely. Yeah. Well, so another thing I'm curious about is that, you know, the book really revolves around, I mean, we're weaving in and out of centuries. We're going to different places. We're really all over the globe. Um, Have you always had, I guess, like a natural affinity for maybe traveling? I mean, we talked about like your travels earlier. Do you like traveling? And then history as well. Like what sort of made you choose to, you know, dive into these different, these different time periods? Yeah. So I've always liked travel. I've always had a bit of wanderlust. Um, I split my time between Scotland, France and America. And, 
and yeah, I, so it's something that's always spoken to me, but again, what's interesting to remember is that I had Addie on that low heat on that back burner for my entire career. And for a lot of the last five to six years of that career, I was traveling for work. And so I would go to countries on tour. And so it was a really cool thing because Addie was like this passenger. And so every time I would go to a place for research or for a tour, I would ask myself, okay, well, how would Addie engage with this environment? Like, what would she notice? What would she do? Like, what would speak to her? It was like a very specific lens I was always like checking in on. And so I kind of let the places that I was going on tour navigate her sensibilities. I also, you know, it's really important to remember like this book is not a travel log. This is not, you know, Addie now goes to Tokyo and Addie, Addie goes to Taipei and Mexico City. Like Addie is a French woman uh, in a historical context who does not make a deal to live forever because she wants to travel the world. It's not a judge matter. <laughs> no, she just wants to like live. And, and, and until um, like, until like the French revolution, the farthest she's ever gone is Paris. You know, like Luke is the one that pushes her boundaries beyond the country's edge. And so her world is peeling open around her very slowly. And, and she also, because of her curse, travel is not an easy or a safe thing. Because of her gender, it's not safe. Because of her curse, it's not easy. And so a lot of the geographic decisions that she makes are driven by a desire for comfort like she is expanding and she is exploring but um but it really is bounded by her desire to be around like kind of arts and like where the the western european kind of flourishes were happening but also where she could easily get to and so i did focus largely on western europe and then on on North America because she eventually does take a boat, <laughs> but it is, it is difficult for her. She can't just like, she doesn't have money. She has to stow away. So there are modes of travel, which are much more difficult and more dangerous. And so um, it was a combination of trying to dictate to her sensibilities as a character, which were fairly insular. I mean, she's a self-absorbed character. She is a universe of one mm-hmm. um, with a limited amount of freedom. And with, so I was able to do that and then pair it with the places that I was going already for research and for travel. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love that you broke it down that way because that's sort of how I interpreted it is that, you know, she wasn't making this bargain, this deal to, you know, just really like cash out, like cash in oh. and just like <laughs> explore the world and like live life to the fullest. I think the way I interpreted it was that she was looking to escape maybe what was expected of her. She was looking to discover more about herself. And in doing that, you know, came along the traveling, the meeting new people, but not really meeting new people and just, (laughs) (laughs) and just having all of those experiences. So I really loved that. And I think there is something really chilling. Um, Like you said that before, and I, it's, it's funny because, um, in terms of like forgetting the concept of forgetting and being forgotten, um, my grandmother also had Alzheimer's and that was something I looked at from, it was my dad's mother. And from his perspective of having, you know, the woman that literally gave you life, not remembering who you are and vice versa for her. And there's something really 
deeply saddening within that. And I think I was just curious, like how, I mean, as you were building this character, so that's sort of where that came about for you, this whole concept of being forgotten and forgetting. Um, but as you continued to, you know, develop her layers, um, did you start to, I mean, did it just expand the look you had on this whole concept of like Alzheimer's dementia, all of that? I mean, I, it was interesting because I would have to obviously put myself in Addie's position and I would say the hardest scene to write is the scene where her parents don't remember her anymore. Like when she mm -hmm. returns home, that's not a spoiler. It happens in like the opening chapters. Um, because I think that is my nightmare, like growing, like growing up and watching that happen within my own family. And my mother is one of my best friends. Like she's one of the closest people in my life. Um, and so to imagine that happening is terrifying. I really just looked at that from an extended perspective then about, I think we, when you think about who we are as people, so much of our self-perception is a reflection of how others see us. Like we don't exist in a void. Like our ideas of self come from context. And a lot of that context is like, whether you're writing fictional characters, when you're writing fictional characters, so often the way that you help the reader get to understand those characters is by showing them how other people see those characters in the story. So it's all ensemble, it's all context. So to take a character and strip away the context and not allow them the relationships, the time. I mean, that comes to be what Addie covets more than anything. She wants to wake up in bed with somebody who remembers her, mm -hmm. like who rolls over and says, good morning. She wants somebody to know what her favorite foods are. She wants something. And so what happens is in the absence of these details, this context in which we kind of shape our entire personalities around, right. um, she's forced to ask herself, like, who is she? Like, who are you when there's nobody to reinforce the beliefs of that answer? And it's scary. And for her, like, that is the closest she ever comes to madness. Like, you start to, be you start to believe you are not real. You start to question. Because we have so little experience as human beings with existing without the context at all of other people in our lives, you know? I mean, I know that we all went through a modicum of isolation, varying degrees of this last year, but there was still always at least one person probably who like knew who you were. Maybe not everyone knows you on the same level. Maybe not everyone knows your most intimate selves, but like to imagine not having anybody even know your face or know your name or know, you know, to, to know that you have nobody. Mm -hmm. it, it was really, really difficult to look into that mindset and very deeply lonely to consider for her. And so like Addie is a very flawed character, but I am intensely protective of her as a character because what sh the circumstance that she's in is so untenable. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the really heartbreaking thing about the deal that she makes. I mean, from the outside, it seems like a, a pretty good, you know, pretty good deal. <laughs> um, but then when she really starts to understand her terms and conditions and then begins yeah. to experience that, you know, the more people she interacts with and the more like time that, you know, passes by, it's really, um, it's heartbreaking. And I guess, I don't know if this is like a fun, a fun question to throw at you or not, but um, in terms of the deal, cause I don't want to spoil like too much yeah. of what happens with, you know, Addie's, Addie's deal and what continues with that. But 
I guess just for you, I mean, would you consider uh, making a deal? Uh, would you possibly consider, you know, Addie's deal, Henry's deal, um, all of these things uh, or no? <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? I like come to this from a position of somebody who is deeply afraid of mortality, not because of death itself, but because of the limitations of time. And it's something I think about a lot. I think Addie and Henry both have that same fear that they feel like life is passing them by far too quickly. Addie says in the opening chapters, like she's afraid she will be born and buried in the same 10 meter plot. Like you blink and a decade is gone at a time. I think we've all had that experience at some point where you just feel like it's going too fast. And it just speeds up the older that you get. And so I definitely think I would be tempted to make a deal for more time. Mm -hmm. I certainly think that like, I think that the loss of those who I've already met would be the hardest part. So the loss of family, the loss of the relationships that I already have, because there it's, it's different from being like, you know, born into a situation where you've never known a thing, but to have known and lost is very difficult. But I, I do think that part of me would certainly be tempted simply to have enough time. It's something that I feel like I'll never have enough of. Yeah, I know. I was even thinking about it. It's like, I don't know if I would want the ability to, you know, have more time to my life or be able to freeze time. Because yeah. I sort of look at it as like, you know, life, there's so many, I mean, there's so many really sucky moments of life, but there's also mm -hmm. some really beautiful ones. And to be able to freeze those like, you know, beautiful moments um, would be great. But then, you know, there's always some sort of, you know, terms and conditions to it. There's a catch. There's always a catch. Always. Um, but yeah, it's such a beautiful, beautiful book. And I think what I loved about it is all of these takeaways um, the different themes you sort of like dip into. And I mean, one of my biggest takeaways is that, you know, we want so much. And even if we make this incredible, you know, deal, um, we're not always going to get what we're looking for. And I think as just as people, you know, we're always after something yeah. and we think, oh, like, you know, this is the answer to that problem, but you know, it's not. <laughs> I think there's like, I think it's definitely a novel of grays. There's no black and white to it. Like there's, I love watching people try to have a conversation about the validity or invalidity of Luke as a romantic partner, because <laughs> I think like it's a deeply abusive relationship. Like it's mm -hmm. an extremely abusive relationship that she and the devil have. But at the same time, he's all she has. Like, right. can we fault her for at some point being tempted to find a partner, even if it's the partner who put her in this situation, even if it's not an equal partner, be because it's better than the absence of anything. And also, like, I don't know, I, 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 it's a novel that I hope makes people ask questions. Like, do you believe that Luke becomes more human as Addie becomes less human? Do you believe that he really loves her? Do you believe that... Um, Addie is a good person. Do you believe that Addie loves Henry? Like I, these are questions that I hope people ask. And it's really interesting to see how different the takes are. And I think that as a novelist, like that to me is a strength and not a weakness. Like I want people to, because as a novelist, like we bring half of the equation and the reader will always bring the other half. So I can only control the version of the story that I put down on paper, but I can't control the version of the story that somebody reads because they're always going to bring their own headspace, their own perspective, their own lived experiences, their own hopes, their own questions. And that's the exciting, that's the alchemical part of the equation, right? Is, 
is that, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a messy story, but I hope it makes us wonder. Mm -hmm. And I I think personally, I think those are the best kinds, kinds of books. I mean, Mm -hmm. sure. Like we all do love like a sweet, happy ending where all questions are answered and we can, I don't (laughs) like, all right, going back on the shelf. I know what happens there. Yeah. Very much prefer, you know, being able to really, you know, sit with what I just read. Yeah. And say, well, like what happens? What's next? Is this like how I perceive this person to be? Is it not? Um, it, you know, are there going to be sequels? Are there like all like those like clocks tick and tick? And, you know, it's really, I think that's the best kind of any form of entertainment. Yeah. Is what like makes you walk away thinking, you know, more and more about it. Um, as time passes, but it's such a great book and I can't recommend Mm. it enough. Um, and I'm excited to see like these new projects you're working on. Um, it's, it's exciting. So I guess where can people like keep up with you and follow along with all that's next? Um, definitely. So I have chosen Instagram as the place where I live. Um, and so they can find me on Instagram, just V E Schwab, V E S C H W A B. I, can't seem to detach myself from the platform. So I post, I post often. (laughs) I mean, that's not a bad thing, you know, especially like, like I said, this whole pandemic, I think a lot of people really did learn to live on social media because it was the only way we could really interact with others. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been great to, to see people utilize it, but definitely to keep up with your projects. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on here. Of course. And, you know, I always like to conclude with the last question being, you know, with this being handling it, I always like to ask, has there been perhaps a lesson or a piece of advice you've learned throughout your career that's really helped you handle your life? Okay. So one of the best pieces of advice I got very early on in my career was if you stay in this business long enough, everything that can happen will. And that means the good and the bad and everything in between. And so all of it, the highs, the lows, hills and valleys, you have to understand that it is both the cost and the reward of playing, you know, that the only way to avoid difficult times, the only way to avoid rejection, the only way to avoid anything frightening is not to participate. And so I think that you always, if you want to be a writer or any form of creative, have to make sure that your desire to be there outweighs your fear of being there. And so it doesn't have to outweigh it by a lot. Some days it's just a centimeter more, you know, but I think as long as you can make sure that you want it, that you just like that you understand what you want out of it. Um, and that it is worth being there. As long as that desire outweighs your fear of rejection, of it not happening, of it not working, of then you'll last. Like you'll be able to be there. You'll be able to persist. Yeah. I mean, I think if you have an idea, run with it. Yeah. You know, there's no limitations for what it can be. I mean, rejection, it's bound to happen with anything you do. So best to ignore it, you know, as much as you can. Um, But yeah, I think that's really great advice. So thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Victoria. I am such a fan of Addie LaRue and highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. There's a link in the episode description for you to check it out, along with Victoria's social media handles so you can follow along with her upcoming projects. Thank you to Victoria so much for coming on and thank you listeners so much for tuning in. As always, let me know what you thought of our episode. You can reach us on Instagram at Handling It Podcast and feel free to send us a message and let us hear your thoughts and suggestions. I'll see you next week with a brand new episode, but until then, keep staying safe with everything going on in the world right now and keep handling it. I'll talk to you soon.